how do not disturb works. I've never used I've never used do not disturb on my phone. Great feature. That's the joy of being an admin pastor. You spend most of your time managing a facility and it's like the alarm goes off at the worst parts of the moment. So what we're talking about today, if if you want to talk about HVAC repair, I probably have more knowledge of that due to recent events of my life than anything related to theology. And that's the terrible side of it. I don't think that's... I mean, you do know a lot about HVACs. I do. (laughs) I know a lot of unnecessary things of my job, not necessary things of my job. Um, Theology being one of them, so... All right, well, in this week's episode, we have been asking for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks for people to give us comments or questions or anything that they have that they want to know more about. And we are so thankful because we finally had somebody reach out to us and say, hey, you should talk about this. Uh, And the topic is so meaty (laughs) that we are trying (laughs) our best to figure out how to give, at least for this episode, a concise, um, broad view of what that looks like. So talking about it, but also not going into great uh, elaborate detail about it because uh, each subject of this can be its own seminary course. And so we have to uh, limit what we do. I mean, we could probably create a separate podcast and over the next year talk about half of just this one topic in a 52-week span. Um, But one of the questions we were asked was to give kind of a broad overview of what theology is and kind of what that means. And so uh, Travis and I are here today. We're going to do our best to give you kind of a what he describes as a 30,000-foot overview of what theology is, how to kind of better understand that. So when we talk about here at the church life, uh, your theology matters. We're talking about the way that you understand, study, and know uh, God, your faith. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Travis, I'm going to let you kick this off uh, because I feel like when it comes to the two of us, you probably have a little bit more understanding um, or, or a little bit, let's say not understanding, a little bit more way to systematically package this than what I do. Cause I will ADHD the mess out of this thing and we'll <laughs> yeah. be in some other religion. I was just by the in, time. in seminary more recently than you. So it's a little fresher Is on my mind true, though, because I did go online. <laughs> okay. Maybe not like five years ago. When did you finish? I finished in 2019. Okay, then yeah, you're fresh off the heels. Yeah. I think I finished in like 2017. Which is crazy. That's coming up on three years. So yeah, it is kind of nuts because I finished right before I took on this position of being pastor of air conditioning and heating. So, <laughs> so yeah, theology, not air conditioning and heating. Not air conditioning. That can be a whole other episode. We could. I think that would be beneficial for somebody out there. Maybe. How does church air conditioning work? <laughs> What does it look like to run a building with however many square feet this building is? Uh, chaos. Chaos. Whole episode. So, theology. Yeah. Back to it. Yeah. Um, super broadly, theology is the study of God. So, anything ology is the study of. So, like biology, bio, life, ology, the study of life, biology. Theology, same thing. Theo, ology. Theo is Latin for God. So it's just the study of God. Now, if you're approaching this pretty academically, 
theology can be multiple. Uh, there's different theologies, so it's not wrong in an academic setting to say like Islamic theology to mm. talk about what Muslims believe. Like a, a Muslim perspective or yeah. an Islamic perspective of what that looks like. Yeah. So using the Quran in their case, or you could say Jewish theology, and we're just going to talk about the Hebrew Bible, maybe talk about the Mishnah and different historical things, but there could be Jewish theology. Um, Which I guess but, would be a little bit good idea of a study of God too, because if you're looking at it from a like a Judeo perspective, like a, like a Jewish perspective, it's going to be... Yeah, well, I mean, sort of by the very nature of the New and Old Testament, like we obviously have a ton of overlap with the Judeo understanding. Um, now we disagree when it comes to who Jesus was, but a lot of the Old Testament is overlap. And a um, issue of, and, and there's certain issues of covenant that we would disagree with. I'm sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things we could disagree on, but there's a lot of things that we yeah do agree on. So A lot of commonalities of the attributes of God that we do agree on. But that. So specifically when we're talking about theology, we are talking about Christian theology. And then even yeah. more specific than that, what we're going to kind of do today is talking about systematic theology. So mm. stepping back from that a little bit, what, what am I talking about systematic? Um, there's also historical theology, which is like the, like if you were to approach any given topic as a historian. So someone who, let's say, specialized in like the 19th century could be like okay what did the baptists say about this doctrine what did the methodists say about this doctrine what did the nazarenes say about this doctrine what did the catholics say about this doctrine at this time like and it's it's not necessarily even trying to figure out the truth Mm -hmm. but just looking at it from a historical perspective who believed what about what during this time period i think too that gives you context because a lot of these theologies the way that they interweave and work together is a lot of them provide especially in study, not only the character and nature of God, but also uh, how that writing worked within certain contexts, not just in the Bible, but throughout history. How was this interpreted throughout history? Because I think that's important for us because we get a lot of things, I think, interpretation-wise. I'm just going to say it wrong. (laughs) I think there's a lot of things that we interpret. And I think Hobby Lobby is probably to blame for that because I think Hobby <laughs> Lobby does a lot of interpretive things for us. They take those really cute one-liner Bible verses, remove them from the context, and I think you miss kind of the point of the whole understanding of that. So I think theology working hand-in-hand hand with studying Scripture, and one thing Christians want to do, we want to study Scripture well, but you got to have a good foundation, and that's where theology really kind of comes in on that. Well, no, you just ruined our chances of Hobby Lobby ever sponsoring the podcast. But um, well, yeah, there, no, I think a, you're there's right. There's Christian companies out there. Um, uh, but I wouldn't just blame it there. I mean, I think you could get in the weeds of like um, our culture specifically has ideas around manhood that you could attribute to like John Wayne or Batman or like there's different ideas in our culture that come from various places that we sort of then self-impose. I mean, like if you talk about David being a warrior, it's like, yeah, but he also wrote poetry. Yeah. And we don't think about writing poetry as a very manly characteristic, but yet he's heralded as a man after God's own heart. So sure, there's different cultural things, and I do think historical theology does a nice approach to that. Um, yeah. There's also what uh, the more academic crowd calls biblical theology. 
and biblical theology is trying to not look at things as topics, but just look at it as a story. Mm. So this could be like the overall arching narrative of like Genesis to Revelation, or it could also be specifics like, okay, what all did John write on this given topic? Yeah. So like only looking at the gospel of John, first, second, third John and Revelation, like what do we get from him on the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So uh, Pauline (laughs) theology, look at Luke and Acts together, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And then the other one that I mentioned was philosophical theology. And philosophical theology is trying to, and this is probably the scariest for Christians, but it's <laughs> what can you what can you figure out about God without using the Bible? Yeah. So particularly like when you're talking about general revelation. So like um, whenever it says like the sky or the, what is it? Is it the like the, like the one in Romans where Paul writes about even the very, uh, even even kind of and this is this is super paraphrased like there's the message and then there's like the open <laughs> bo- yeah this is the Travis and Charles super paraphrase so we'll try to get the reference when he's on talking later. about creation pointing to God yeah yeah, yeah. when Paul is I think it's in the book of Romans where he's talking about because it it's it's that idea that people say well what about the people that have never heard of the gospel like what happens to them. It's like, well, there's the general revelation of God and Paul writes about how even those who haven't heard still see him in his creation. And I think that's kind of the general revelation of God. Yes, that's what I was talking about. But specifically, I was thinking about the psalm that Paul is riffing off of where he says the heavens declare. I said sky, heavens. Sky, Um, heavens. We all believe we're going up anyway. (laughs) So basically the same thing in the Hebrew mind. Um, Yeah. But yeah, so the the heavens, the the sky, the stars, all of that points to God. And so um, an example that we can point to is Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who lived like 300-ish, maybe a little more years before Jesus. Sure. Um, Greek philosopher had no contact with the Hebrews that we know of, actually came to the belief that there had to be one single God. Um, he believed philosophically an infinite regress is impossible so that the past couldn't continue indefinitely. There had to be a beginning. Hmm. And so here we have someone who's not associated with the Bible in any way, shape or form, but came to the idea of monotheism in a polytheistic culture using purely ration. Like there's some Catholics that think that Aristotle, because of how far he got in his belief about God will be in heaven. Well, and that kind of brings so, back to even like his idea of even the flawed debate um, philosophically of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Like there's that, and it is kind of flawed in such a way that it doesn't give a full picture of, of that idea of things being created. Um, and we use a lot, I think in apologetics, we use a lot of the watch and the watchmaker. So it's kind of that same concept. Um, but you know, philosophical theology, I think has a place. Christians get scared of it because you can't open the Bible. Yeah. And go, oh, well, it's it says right there. But it's really good for engaging with people who don't believe in the Bible to begin with. Well, because so. think about the things in biblical theology. Think about the things that are contained in Scripture that we have recorded, not only in the history of Scripture, but also that the people who are claiming deep relationship with God, you got to think about the actions and the morality that was taking place at that time. If you were to do that now, you would be in jail. 
like some of those things. And it's just like, we have no problem just all of a sudden accepting the Bible to be true. But yet we get into these, these, these very deep concepts and you're like, well, wait a second. This flies into the face of everything I believed about God. I thought he was just all love and happiness and dogs and puppies and kittens. And that's who God was. You know, he's there to make me happy. And that's the beauty of theology, I think, because theology takes our perception of God, turns it around and says, this is the reality. I have this shirt that I bought at a Christian coffee shop in California that says fear God on it. And then it's like a cartoon version of like Noah's Ark. But then in the ocean, there's all these like floating dead bodies. It's like, we treat it like it's this happy kid story of like, oh, look at the little giraffe sticking oh, its yeah. head out the top of the boat. And it's we, like, no, all of humanity was just drowned. Yeah, we have the Fisher Prize little people version of Noah's Ark where you have the ark and it's all the little animals that you can put on it and play on it. And that is a real part of the story. <laughs> but it's just like you talked about David and Goliath, the whole warrior concept. At church for kids ministry, we talk about David slayed the giant and and we skipped the part did, where he cuts his head off. Yeah, he grabs Goliath's own sword, chops his head off, holds it up in victory, and then they go out and they completely destroy an entire army, a Philistine army. I'm going to put like, you on the spot, but do you know who Shamgar is in the Bible? Oh my gosh, no. There's literally only two verses about him. That's probably why I don't know, yeah, because like, I, I, my ADHD brain says, Shamgar, 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 Shamgar. The only thing it says about him in the entire Bible is that he killed 600 Philistines by himself. <laughs> it's like, could you imagine that movie? Like yeah. one guy versus 600. I think he had like a jawbone or something like random, but it's like that would put any like action movie to shame. That'd be pretty fantastic. There, there's some could crazy you, things in the Bible. Could you, could you imagine being that Christian movie writer where you create the stories based on the actual, like, like, could you create a whole narrative on Shamgar where a backstory and everything and it, I mean, it would be fictional, obviously, but it's just based off that, and he just well, goes out you, killing dudes. Even if you don't go the fiction route, like if Netflix or HBO or somebody made like a Bible series that literally just showed the Bible as it actually happened, it's like they wouldn't be able to rate it because of how much violence there would be in the first half in particular. Oh, yeah. That'd be nuts. But anyway we digress we digress yeah so so that's philosophical <laughs> theology <laughs> and we've solved it um it, I, I can understand it being scary it's the same thing with christian mysticism people get really scared about that too it's one of those things where if you chase that rabbit down the hole i can understand where you can get a little bit wonky and sidetracked on some things but having an understanding of it like i i personally in like in terms of like the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about like pneumatology and stuff, but um, in, in understanding even like the Holy Spirit, there are certain aspects of the Holy Spirit that people believe to be true that I don't necessarily doctrinally believe to be true in my own life. I haven't experienced that. It doesn't mean I don't study it and understand it and see where they're coming from. It just means that in theology, there are going to be a lot of things that you study and go, Oh, you can't just take theology at complete like this. Well, it, the book says it, so it has to be there. I've always told people, take it with a grain of salt. Like look at it and say, measure it against your doctrine, your beliefs, your, your what you interpret scripture uh, as in that moment in, in, in a conservative way. Because then you can go on the liberal side and say, well, you know, the Bible says God is love and theology says God is love. So, God must love everyone. He doesn't want to do anyone harm. And he wants everyone to experience love in whatever format and manner they want to. And that's 
also yeah, not so accurate. That's a good segue into the fourth type of theology was just systematic, which is like you have to take the whole thing. Yeah. Like you can't just pick and choose like, oh, I'm going to just focus on God as love. Like you have to look at it, Genesis from Revelation. And then what systematic theology does is breaks it down into various topics. Yeah, so let's, so, get, let's get into that. Let's look at, let's kind of talk about some of the various topics because I want people to understand that systematic is not just saying, well, we just believe that the book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is true. There's certain aspects that we break down within there. So it's the, it's taking the whole system and, and believing the whole system to be true and, and accurate. So break that down a little bit for them. So you and I both have a copy of <laughs> Millard Erickson's Christian Theology textbook in front of us. And Which is there are one of many good. Yeah, there's several different systematics, and they're all similar, but yeah. everyone has, you know, they might categorize something a little bit differently. So there's small differences. Um, and also, people interpret things differently. And that's yeah. part of the, the study. Like, there have been people writing these things for several centuries and building off of each other, critiquing each other. And so there's no like, one, this is the answer. Now there's yeah. some that we might recommend more than others, but like, um, so well, just for context, this is the one that we're using to kind of break yeah. these topics down. Because for. you got some guys that can get real narrow on it. And I've seen those theology books where it's real narrow, like, well, this is Southern Baptist theology. And I'm like, I understand. I appreciate that. And then you got guys on the other end that make it very broad and wide and leave it open ended. So what we've got is a very conservative theology I mean, just to let you know, this text is a very conservative theology. Been around a long time, a long time. Been used in seminary courses. Um, I, in fact, the condensed down version of this was what I used in my Christian doctrine class when I was in college. And so, um, so and yeah. We both like this one, and I won't yeah. speak for you, but it's a little more Calvinistic than I am. And that could be a whole other conversation. But. Yeah, but I mean, that's the same thing with like Grudem's. I think Grudem's is probably leans a little bit more in that way too. Garrett's is about the only one that I think um, may not lean heavy in that direction. Um, but I think the other thing too is the, even Grudem, Erickson, even Garrett, they're going to give you all the approaches on that. They're not just going to say, this is the one you have to believe because, and that's that narrow approach where they don't give you an option to explore. Uh, like what I liked about Erickson is he, he really does a deep dive into both general mainline uh, interpretations, especially in Southern Baptist life, I think, of of salvation and and uh, even God's kind of grace and and all of that. So yeah. So with that being said, kind of the overview part one, he just talks about studying God. So he has a big section on what is theology, and that includes the historical, biblical, philosophical, and systematic approaches. Um, he talks about even the possibility, like how do we know we can know about God? So it yeah. gets a little bit into epistemology. Um, he talks about the method of how you do systematic theology, which is kind of what I was saying about looking at everything Genesis to Revelation and then piecing together when we get into these topics. Um, what does the whole Bible, not just one passage, have to say about something? Uh, part two is about knowing God. So how can we know? So we, we hit on general or universal revelation a little bit. Um, talk talk a little bit more about that particular revelation because I think we hit a little bit about general revelation, but then we talk about particular revelation. Like when we're talking about this is God's particular revelation, what are some aspects of that that we're talking about? So the main thing when it comes to particular revelation is the Bible itself. So it's like this is 
something that you would not like Aristotle was able to come to the belief of one God just from philosophy and looking at the universe, but he would never get to the Trinity. Yeah. Without particular or divine or specific yeah. revelation. So the Bible, like maybe you could come to the belief in God yeah. without the Bible. You're not going to come to the belief in the Trinity. Yeah. Or, you know, the virgin birth or, you know, whatever specific thing that we learn from in the Bible. It's not like you'd get that um, without particular revelation. So and that's I, the big thing there. And I think that comes in too, because part of that where he's looking at on in Erickson, where he condenses that down is where he gets into the idea of inerrancy and authority. Um, having to believe the Bible is inerrant and then having to believe that it is the authoritative word of God. And I mean, the interesting thing is that you could do a class just on knowing God and just inerrancy and authority. Um, when you look at the different councils that have been brought together to even bring about what we call the Holy Bible, uh, which has always been interesting to me because we, we get these ideas in our head about the authoritative word of God having to be the KJV only, you know? And I think that that's an interesting piece too, because theology brings you to the understanding that, wait a minute, you know, the KJV is great. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a decent translation. It's not bad. Granted, it's King James bent on, on especially if you get a little bit further back in that translation. I mean, King James is going to have an English translation written to where it, to a point, appeases him. The problem with the King James is that it was taken, like it was the first English, but it was from the Latin, whereas there's yeah. more modern translations like the ESV or the NASB, which are taken straight from the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so those are actually closer to the original than the King James. And so when you talk about, about talking about the authoritative word of God, if we only rest in saying, well, the KJV is our, is like the original Bible. I mean, no, <laughs> there, there's no. Really not. In fact, there's a lot of, there's a lot of writings during uh, those times that were not included in that, in the canonization of scripture because they did not meet a certain criteria. So that's where then even the inerrancy and the authority and, and knowing God I think understanding that even the, even the process of how scripture is brought together is essential in knowing him. I mean, you're trusting these guys that when they canonize scripture, you're trusting they had the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit and the sensitivity of God in them to bring this and, and pile it together. Yeah. I mean, like you said at the beginning, any one of these topics, like you could spend an entire like semester class on. There are entire books written yeah. on every single one of these topics. There are people that wrote their PhDs like over four years of studying this one topic. So like yeah. everything we're, we're barely skimming. Yeah. So it's like most people hear a preacher say that the Bible is inerrant or authoritative and they're just like, okay, cool. I believe yeah. it. I'm good <laughs> yeah. to go. Sounds good, brother. Let's go to the next topic. And if that's you, sweet. <laughs> Tell if me when I'm going into the sky. If it's not you, like there are tons of other people that have written and studied this extensively and you can you know, study where you need to. But kind of moving on from the whole idea about knowing God, Erickson then moves into uh, part three, which is what is God like? So he spends a whole chapter on the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the nearness and distance of God, whole chapter on the Trinity. So yeah. like each one of those, I mean, th this book that we have in front of us is over 1,100 pages. Yeah. Like it's a big book thick i mean this with is a not a coffee print. table book i mean <laughs> this is more of a if you want to look smart with all your friends just put it on your bookshelf in your in your living room and be like oh yeah that's my theology book 
Um, it'll definitely do. So it. yeah, when I say we're doing thirty thousand foot, like it's probably more like fifty to a hundred thousand foot. Like we're yeah, we're barely scraping this. But these are the different topics that like you can get into. But I think these parts that we're referring to are probably the parts that people get most concerned with when it comes to their their personal relationship with Scripture and with God. Um, talking about what is God like, we everyone wants to know that. I don't I don't know a single person that doesn't want to know what God is like. But we want to know the exhaustive view of what God is. And there's still that mystery that we can't seem to fathom. Yeah. That's like what you're talking about getting into part four, what God does. Yeah. That can get tricky. Yeah. Specifically the chapter on providence and like how involved God is. Oh, because yeah. everybody wants God to be involved when things are going well. But then the second there's a tragedy, it's like, where is God? Well, that's like, uh, so Dr. Ross in one of his classes, uh, like a family ministry class in seminary, he always made it to be like <coughs> Jesus, especially his relationship with Jesus. He would, he always referenced back to King Jesus, but he would make it to where Jesus is a, we treat Jesus as a mascot more than a monarch. And the, the understanding of that was we keep Jesus in our pocket to come into situations when we need him. And then when he's done solving the situation and we feel like we, it has been solved in a sustainable manner for us, we put him back in our pocket and only use him when it's necessary for us instead of seeing the overall supreme view of who Jesus is and how that interprets into our life. I think that's the same thing when looking at God's providence. We want to narrow our focus and say, well, God is going to love me and take care of me and give me money. Um, I mean, he's not the government, so it's not, he's just going to like start whipping out dollars just for the fun of it. Um, so, understanding his providence, how he works in suffering and in joy. That's been a, that's a, I mean, I remember there was a Piper book years ago that I got at Mardell for $2 and it was uh, suffering in the sovereignty of God. And in, I mean, in that idea, it's understanding the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of suffering and trial. And I mean, it's on the bookshelf at Mardell. Nobody wants to know about that. I mean, nobody, nobody really wants to like understand or deal with God and relate God to suffering. And we don't. Sorry. Did I hijack? No, yeah. no, you're good. I'm, I'm internally laughing at myself. This is a critique because I listened to like one of the first episodes of her podcast and I realized how much like nonverbal communication I do. So like I'm like nodding or pointing at things and it's like <laughs> that doesn't come up on the podcast at all. So I got to get used to the whole more than nonverbal communication. <laughs> You're just going to start like, going, I'm nodding my head. I'm, <laughs> I'm nodding my head. <laughs> Maybe we should do a video podcast. <laughs> you said no to video podcasts. I tried that, folks. I tried asking him to do a video podcast. He's like, no, I look stupid on camera. I said, I don't Me think too. that's what it's I gonna said. It's going to look great. We could more call work. It, I don't know how to work. We could call it two dum-dums in theology. <laughs> It wasn't switch out coffee for dumb dumb suckers. It was see dumb dumb suckers while trying to talk our way through theology. Dumb zones in theology. Sorry. Keep keep going. So part five. <laughs> Moving on from what God does, and we didn't talk about creation or the problem of evil or angels or any of that. Erickson goes yeah. into all that in that section, but we don't have time to do this exhaustively again. We're just trying to give you this kind of overview, but in part five, he moves on to humanity or what some people call like a Christian anthropology. So we're yeah. talking about the doctrine of humanity. We're talking about the human origin story. We're talking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, all of those sorts of things, which naturally leads into part six, which is all on 
sin, what is sin, the source of sin, the results of sin, the magnitude of sin, like there's a whole lot and it's really hard. Um, But from there, he moves into uh, what we call broadly Christology um, or Christology, um, which is, as you'd probably guess, everything about Christ or the person of Jesus. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch there. I mean, we can talk about his humanity. We can talk about his divinity. We can talk about how those things both existed at the same time. And that's and that does give a little bit better view. Like I've always enjoyed reading the theology of Christology, the theology of Christology, uh, reading Christology, and then also reading the Gospels around that time too, because you get to almost see how the understanding takes place within the Gospels. And I'm not talking about like pick your favorite Gospel and go with it. Like you're reading all four of them or Another great book that you can that you can use alongside this sometimes, A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels is also a really good one because a lot of the stories that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he has already kind of piled those together so you can see where they work and how they work and you know who's using a different story versus somebody else. And Harmony of the Gospels is a great little book to to jump into along with it as well. For sure. <laughs> nodding my head. I'm yes. nodding my head. <laughs> but moving on from part seven to part eight, which is the work of Christ. Yeah. Um, so then we're starting to get into the various theories of the atonement, which, um, you know, pre-seminary, I was always told atonement is like at one mint. At it, one mint. At one mint. It's what it looks like. So it's literally like this theology of like becoming one or okay with God. And it's like, yeah, that's not wrong, but there's actually a whole bunch of different theories of the atonement. Um, of which Protestants will even argue about, but broader than that, it's like Catholics have a different understanding of the atonement. The Orthodox have a different understanding of the atonement. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about the reconciliation process that happens with God through Christ? Yeah, that's, I mean, because, I mean, Baptists, we we are evangelical by nature. And so when we look at even just the idea, and I'm sure he gets into it a little bit more in, in that of, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, I mean, this is how broad you can make this and you can really break this down because that idea of, of atonement is um, big when it comes to our... Sorry. My phone was doing something funny. <laughs> I don't know what it was. So Anyway. So atonement, I'll clip that out later. <laughs> Just go for it. We always have these weird breaks in here. I know that you guys don't understand it, but every now and then we get like a phone call or we get like a message <laughs> come in and we have to answer it. So if it if you're like, why did they chop that? It may be that literally we got interrupted by somebody. And it wasn't us interrupting each other. It was something else interrupting our day. But anyway, so back to the work of Christ, talking about the atonement um, and just that reality. Again, we talked about justification, sanctification, glorification. We as Baptists, I think, tend to focus on just one of those aspects. Like we want to get people saved. When it comes to the aspect of helping them get from salvation, initial salvation to um, that process of glorification, sometimes we, we struggle in that area because it requires us to do life with people. But even then, I think justification, isolating that to a one-time thing in our life and not understanding it 
as a broader scope of, of like an everyday being justified and sanctified, preparing ourselves for the glory of the Lord. I think that's a big, that's a big thing to understand. Sure. And there's the bigger picture of God being the one of pursuing humanity. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch there. And that's the interesting thing too, especially going, like if we were to go back to God, we see God in pursuit of us, where in other religions, you find God to be very distant. And even I think within Christian denominations, there are people that believe God to be a very distant thing and it's our job to appease him. But that's not the relationship that we have with him. Well, and I think even a lot of Christians feel that way. Oh, yeah. They feel like he's different and I've got to be good to get in his good graces. Yeah, I'm not good enough for God. Well, no, you're not. I mean, there's I'm like, not. There's no understanding or conversation about like, no, God's actually the one pursuing us. And that's the, and that's the thing about the atonement in, in Christ. When talking about the theology of Christ, Jesus alone is the understanding that God is in deep pursuit of us on a regular basis. Well, and not just that in youth the other night we were talking, um, when Jesus is talking about the Holy spirit and he says like, he's coming to convict the world. Yeah. And it's like, that sounds scary. In fact, my systematic professor did his whole dissertation on, the spirit's role in judgment, but it's like, it's not just a scary thing. Like if you are saved, it's because the Holy spirit convicted you. Like it's still, it's not just like, you know, God sent Jesus 2000 years ago. No, like the spirit is still convicting and working on people. Right. And so, I mean, which leads us to kind of the part nine of his systematic is talking about the Holy spirit and the role of the Holy spirit. So Holy spirit or what theologians call pneumatology. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch there, like we talked about his role in conviction, but also um, just the continued relationship that we have with God through the Spirit. Uh, again, Paul in Romans talks about the Spirit interceding or praying for us, yeah. which is a whole crazy idea. Um, and, and if you're KJV listening, your Bible will probably say Holy Ghost. <laughs> which I can't, I can't really get around Holy Ghost. Only because I'm always afraid. I always see like this kid walking around in a fall festival with a bed sheet on and some holes cut out. And I'm like, he's pretending to be like, ooh. Like, I just don't, I guess in my interpretation and understanding, I don't want to interpret the Holy Spirit well, in the pneuma, form of like a, of like a ghost. Like, yeah. but you know what I mean? Like, like a, a cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. Like something out of a Scooby-Doo Holy Spirit animation. has nobody. Yeah. Yeah. He like is a, a person. A Scooby-Doo animation. He is, is like, a he no, no ghost costume. Like somebody pops out and goes, you know, if it, I'd gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kid. You know, <laughs> I just, I have, so for me, Holy Spirit is a, a, a more correct interpretation. Let me ask you this too, when we're talking about Holy Spirit, uh, I've got friends that are in, uh, I would say more charismatic uh, doctrines, more charismatic backgrounds. When they talk about the Holy Spirit, they don't say the Holy Spirit. They literally refer to uh, him, the Holy Spirit yeah, as Holy as, Spirit as Holy Spirit. Yeah, when, and they and they'll say, um, you know, Holy Spirit is they, they were they they personify and give it that nature. So not my area of expertise, but I think the reason behind that is there is no definite article the in Greek. So if you're yeah. if you were just reading like the Greek, it would just say Holy Spirit, and so they say us adding the is like an imposed part of English that isn't actually there. So I would argue that the Greek personifies Holy Spirit. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself to be charismatic in terms of how we understand it in a, in a Western Christian uh, 
understanding. I wouldn't consider myself to be charismatic, but is it wrong for us to, to say Holy Spirit? I mean, cause I don't I, think so. I think it's just, we're so conditioned to say yeah. the Holy Spirit. It's what we've grown up Holy with spirit, but I don't think it's wrong. Yeah. Anyway, that's for, just for anybody wondering, do we want to go down the rabbit hole of what is charismatic? I mean, there may be a day where we're going to do that, but I think it's probably better on that one. If we bring in somebody that is in, Oh, we can find an AG pastor and bring them in. Well, uh, we've got, I've got friends that are already here in town that would love, and they've come from Baptist backgrounds into assembly Ooh, of God or even things like that. So we got to do that. That'd be a great discussion. I think just for some of those guys to be able to talk about how they interpret and, and where they get that interpretation. Um, so, it, because again, our desire here is not to tell you what to believe. Our desire is to just give you something to engage you every single week and just go, Oh, that's an interesting or, Oh, these dudes are nuts. Um, <laughs> as long as you don't try to fire us, we're fine. So just keep us employed for our family's sake. Yeah. But <laughs> I guess we kind of hit on it, but pneumatology also does include the role of the spirit in spiritual gifts yeah. and the continuation of the gifts or mm-hmm. the cessation of the gifts. So that's yeah. kind of the last part of pneumatology that we didn't directly hit on, but that's all part of pneumatology. But after that, he moves into salvation or soteriology. Yeah. Um, so he talks about all sorts of different conceptions of salvation. Um, when the process of salvation actually begins the continuation process of salvation. So like we talk about salvation typically in a Baptist or Protestant world as a past tense events. Yeah. So it's like, Oh yeah, I got saved then. But in the new Testament, like Peter specifically says like, like I was saved, I am being saved and I will be saved. Yeah. Like there is a continuing tense. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. Yeah. But we don't, think about we think about sanctification usually as like discipleship i'm I'm becoming more christ-like over time through discipleship through but but we don't think about it like as an actual part of being saved yes maybe we should we can have a conversation about that 100 i (laughs) think and i think that's really the fault of a lot of the american church today we have dropped a lot of importance and probably part of that is due to the desire for us to grow churches um, in number. Well, it's easy to measure how many people get saved. Yeah. It's not easy to measure if your people are growing spiritually or not. Yeah. That's a different form of measurement. And the only way that you could even come close to measuring that is through, uh, replication, like one-on-one replication, um, or one on, I I even think one-on-three is fine. So any, any form of replication is about the only way to do that. But the idea of salvation, because I know for me, there have been moments in life where, yes, I know I'm saved. I know at 10, I got saved. I was baptized. Was there a period of time where I walked away from that or I didn't follow in that completely? Yeah, of course. Especially being a teenager, you know, growing up and and, and even not being involved in church for a number of years, you're not around that. It's not It's not something that you're doing on a regular basis. So you have, even in your sin, when you recognize your sin, there's so much guilt and there's so much shame, I think, that comes with it when you are trying to follow Christ, that if you don't understand the process of being saved on a regular basis, I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Being saved regularly. And every, I mean, every day. That doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. Right, right. That just means that you're looking at His grace is being applied to you continually. you're, You're waking up every day going, man. God's grace is so good to me. 
and you're seeking that repentance. I think repentance is a big part of that continual process of salvation where if you get saved and you, if, if repentance is just a one, one and done thing, we're in trouble because what does that mean for our sin after that? And we had actually had a college student here years ago that struggled with this concept. Um, he believed that he had to pray to re-receive his salvation every time he sinned. And he so, grew up in a Nazarene background? I had a friend um, in high school who was Nazarene and he thought the same thing. No, I think he grew up kind of in a mixed type of like a, a combination of Protestant and Catholic background. Um, and, and so his concept and understanding was I, in order for me to stay saved, I cannot sin at all. And we said, well, what happens then if you die and you have sin on your, on your heart before you die? He goes, well, then I go to hell. Yeah. My friend believed the same thing. And I'm like, oh, golly, what a, I mean, I'm going to say it. What a damning type of worldview worldview in life to live mm-hmm. every single day where you are constantly berating yourself every single day. There's no room for grace in that. You've, no. you've immediately taken God's grace out of the equation. You've moved in your own merits and your own works. If I can keep myself morally stable and without sin, then I am going to be doing great. Yeah, it's, it's not, not about a, God at that moment. Yeah, it's not about what Jesus did. It's about it's me centric. Can I get in the right place at the right time? Yeah, and I think that's the same thing with worship too. We talk about worship a lot, but it's that me centric mentality of it's all about what I can do, how I can do it. You know. Anyway, back to salvation. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we kind of hit on earlier. Like, there's different views when it comes to Calvinism and Arminianism and some things like that that he gets into that we're not going to today. Yeah. I love when people ask like, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I say, I'm a Molinist. Yeah. And they're like, wait, there's a third option. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, there yeah. is. Well, and it's like, <laughs> are, are you Arminian or Calvinian? Yes. Neither. Both. I'm not sure yeah. how to answer that. Yeah. It, and we talked about that, I think in college too, especially with Erickson's book. One of the, one of the debates that I think our professors loved was just throwing that out there and just watching the class, like go at each other's throats on stuff. Of course, our class wasn't like that. But the question my professor imposed on us, he says, why can't, why can't God's salvation include both of those things? You know? And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, well, there's responsibility that we have in following Christ and responding to his call, right? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, we have responsibility in this to be free from sin and, and all this. Like, well, but then I look at it, God chose Paul to do this work. Like Christ showed up to Paul and said, I, you're going to stop doing this. You're going to do this. Oh, that's, that's, that is God choosing Paul. You know, Paul had no desire to do that. And God said, no, that's not going to be the case. You look at the Hebrew people, the Israelites, God set aside a people for himself. So I, I think that there are certain aspects that we can't just, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater. For sure. These guys back in the day, John Calvin and and all these guys, they're trying to come up with deeper understandings. I don't think they ever imagined that their thought processes would be blown up into these great debates that we've created today. I think their idea was, hey, what about this? What about this thought? What about this thought process? Is this a reality? Well, kind of keeping with the theme of you know, studying theology. It's like Calvin and Luther and 
Zwingli and some of those early reformers, yeah. it's like they were pushing back against what the Catholic Church was teaching at the time. And then it was like as time went on, you've got like the Wesley brothers or yeah, you know, whoever who leans more on the Arminian side and they're like, hey, you know, we're not Catholic, but I also think Calvin wasn't 100% right on this part. Yeah. And then it's like, here we are a couple hundred years after that and we're still trying to figure out like, how exactly does this whole sovereignty and free will thing yeah. work out? Like, yeah. And, which you know, the average human IQ isn't that high. So like, yeah. good luck figuring out the providence and sovereignty of God. Like, well, I mean, it's one of those things that you just sort of have to, it's like, I'm going to give it my best attempt, but at the same time for me to be confident enough that I can figure out how this yeah. works at this huge universal cosmic level. Like it's kind of arrogant in my opinion. Well, and that it's very similar because even like, uh, like I've got some of the books on DA Carson that he writes concerning compatibilism, which is kind of that idea that there is, there is God's sovereignty and God's providence over things. But then there's still this human responsibility that comes with that. I believe that God is sovereign over my world and over the world that we live in, I believe that I have a responsibility in that world to be sensitive to, listen to, and follow the things of God that he's teaching through scripture. Um, and when I'm not responsible to those things, that's sin. And I have to get myself in line and, and right with that. So to me, there's that idea of compatibilism where even my salvation, I believe that the Holy Spirit impressed upon me to become saved, but I you think still that, responded. Yeah, I res- I had to respond to that, and I think that when we talk about the unforgivable sin or or blaspheming the name of God, a lot of times we think of that as well. You can't say that swear word when the reality is blaspheming the name of God is when the Holy Spirit convicts and you deny that there is no salvation for you. Yeah, you haven't. You salvation is not yours because guess what? You're not saved. You denied the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. You deny the Holy Spirit's work in, in the saving grace, and so you don't you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I think that's the one thing we get confused in in church. And we talked about this, I think, the other day in the hall. There are a lot of people who have a great relationship with church as an organization, but they have zero relationship with Jesus. And that's the bigger problem, I think, of especially the American church, We've got a, we're, we're put, we're pumping out a lot of good church people, a lot of good organizational, morally good people. We're not pumping out a lot of people that are deeply saturated and in love with Jesus. And that's an issue. <laughs> and that's why we wonder why our country is going sometimes the way it is. Well, or why the church is, you know, on the decline. Constantly and- on decline. Not just, and honestly, not just at Calvary. The church in America as a whole, we're seeing those numbers drop off rapidly. It's yeah. not about bringing your kids to church. It's about being deeply in love with Jesus. And the question is just how many of those people were actually saved and understood the gospel to begin with? Yeah. Or how many of them were just, you know, sort of moral people that culturally yeah. did this thing? And, you know, it's like they believe in God, but yeah, they hope they go to heaven. But understanding the crucifixion and resurrection. It's like, that's not part of their worldview. Yeah. And and I think too, that brings us into this idea of the church because, which is his part 11. When we talk about church, we're talking about broader than organization, right? Yeah. We're not talking just about like our church. Now, you know, there's an interesting conversation there. So the, the big word here is ecclesiology. Yeah. So study of the church, we're talking both about local churches, like ours, Calvary, Mm-hmm. But we're also talking about 
the church, capital C church, like every Christian universal trying to follow Christ. Right. Or is following Christ. But um So there's which, a distinction it or there. Not, expands beyond denominations. Yeah. Neat. <laughs> there are people that aren't Baptists that will be in heaven. What? Hope that's not a shocker to you. Wow. Have you ever read Mere Christianity? Oh, man, it's been so long ago. My brain doesn't work like that. Like, you have that brain where you can read a book and recall, like, a paragraph or a phrase, like a reference. My brain's like, I read this thing one time. I don't know where, but it kind of said this. So it's been a long time. If if we can't uh, get more interviews lined up, I think we should, like, take it a chapter at a time. Do a synopsis of Mere Christianity. I mean, He's trying to approach it at a non-denominational level, but there's still things that we would disagree with because he's approaching it more from an Anglican point of view. But right. it'd be fun to discuss. But anyway, that's a, just a topic idea. We'll throw that out there. But you said Anglican. <gasps> Does that mean C.S. Lewis will be in heaven since he wasn't a Southern Baptist? Sorry. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to the sarcasm. <laughs> Do I actually answer I'm nodding, that? I'm nodding. I'm nodding my head. I'm nodding my head. <laughs> So ecclesiology, yeah. Um, this covers everything from like how the church is run. So like we are a congregational church, but mm-hmm. other churches run as elders. Yeah, which is a conversation that honestly Baptists are really torn on. Um, the modern SBC, yeah, has a lot more elder-run churches than the SBC, even like twenty years ago well i think that and i think too because i've i've looked at this especially in like church governance you can read scripture you see the the role of elders and overseers within that and the desire of that was um paul would come in and plant these churches and start these churches and he would put elders and overseers over those churches it it wasn't like there was i mean it was almost like he was like this I think of like a circuit riding pastor, you know, the back in the day of those Methodist circuit riders, which I'm not 100% sure on this because I hear differing stories, but like my great, great, maybe like my great, great, great grandfather or great, great, I don't know, somebody on those lines, like a Methodist circuit rider, but they would go around and they would preach at these different churches and do these different things. Cause a lot of these areas, they don't have pastors full time. So you got to have somebody come in and, and do those things. And so Paul would appoint overseers and elders to continue the growth of that and the continual education and community and fellowship of that church. So even in modern times, it's not uncommon for pastors to be at churches for two or three years. Then what? If a church doesn't have a system of governance that can sustain themselves through that, I don't know. It's just yeah, interesting. Yeah, but the argument is more about like, <clears throat> does a church have one? So mm. so where we get the word pastor, like if you yeah. follow it from the English to the Latin, or I think there's German in there at some point, but like if you follow it all the way back to the Greek, like this word elder that we read about yeah. in Timothy and Titus uh, and in the book of Acts, like that's where we get our word pastor. And yeah. so the argument comes in, do you have one elder or pastor over a congregation Mm-hmm. Or are there multiple? And so the debate kind of comes down to like when Paul's writing to different churches and he'll say like the elders, yeah, the congregational model will say, well, he was planting house churches. There was multiple churches in the city that each had a elder. Yeah. The other, the elder view is that 
he was writing to a congregation with multiple elders. Yeah. And so there's, there'd be like a plurality of pastors. Yeah. Um, who, you know, we kind of do it like the senior pastor model. Yeah. And then it's like Charles is the number two C- guy. Yeah. And, it's like the CEO model for churches. Yeah. And so the question is just like, okay, is that, is that right? Well, yeah. Or is that not? Actually, and I'm not trying to so stir that up, but there is a, there is different opinions on how to do church government. And well, that's that, part of ecclesiology. That's a very interesting piece too. Cause years ago when we went to a mission trip in Chicago, I remember listening to a podcast years ago. These were around a long time before we ever started them, just so you know. Um, but there was a church planning pastor that they, they did a podcast on greatest among equals. And they said that to them, that was a very false model for them to plant their church. That, this idea that you had one overarching senior pastor who kind of managed the whole everything. Now they spread out different responsibilities within their church, but they, they considered themselves all equal when it came to the vision direction and, and, and all of that of it. So coming back to the idea of governance though, we here at Calvary, we're congregation led. We do teams, we do things like that, that, manage a lot of the organizational aspects of the church. We have deacons that do serving in the church. We don't have an elder board. Um, I, I'm, I'm under the impression, like even of my own, if, if it were me personally, uh, I see a healthy combination of both. I think that you can have a group of guys or, you know, a group of men, elders within the church overseers that, that, that are upstanding in faith. And you go through a whole process of vetting those people and and then they help deal with the organizational day-to-day normal stuff. But any kind of big ideas or changes, those things are always presented before the congregation. And I think back to even like the Apostle Paul writing in, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 8, when he begins to write about uh, the role of idol food within the church and how you know meat offered to idols was just really good barbecue. <laughs> um, but that had to come out from somewhere. Yeah. So there had to be an outcry from the congregation of saying, Hey, listen, well, the church that we were at in Kansas city was actually what they called elder ruled congregationalism. So there wasn't just like one senior pastor, but the, all of the elders were equal in terms of teaching and kind of guidance on yeah. where the church was going, but they kept the congregational led part because of Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he's talking about the case of sexual immorality in the church. Yeah. And Paul gets on to not the elders of the church, but the whole church. He's like, you should have kicked this person out. Yeah. And so he doesn't lay the blame at the elders. He lays it at the entire congregation. congregation. And yeah. so like the way that that worked at that church was, yeah, we had multiple elders who rotated preaching. It was a church plant. And so some of them were only part-time or bivocational or whatever but they had equal say when it came to the leadership and vision of the church. But then when it came down to like what our budget was, you know, certain things that, you know, they wanted the whole church to have a say. And so there is a combination of the two, but well, and I think that too, that limits a lot of red tape that you find in a lot of church governance styles because I I mean, I've been a part of churches where, you know, one person has a thought, well, we've got to take it to this team and then that team's got to take it to this team and then that team's got to take it to this team and then that's got to, and then we have to give two weeks notice for the church, then we have to have a discussion, then a vote. So to even do one matter of business at some of these little churches with only 20 people, it would take two months. I'm like, there's 20 of you. <laughs> Let's just meet up at the house. We'll get some food. 
we'll all talk about it together and let's just move forward. So I think there's times where we get so nervous about making a wrong decision that we put all of these barriers in place when in reality, I think if we appoint people that we have vetted and that we trust, and those guys are going to have faults too. I mean, you're not going to find a perfect person out there. Each one's going to have faults. But if the congregation can agree and say, we trust this group of men to lead and give vision and direction, and if that group of men understands that they are responsible to that congregation and that they have a responsibility to lead and guide and direct them, that's where I think that there's a marrying of those two styles of governance that you don't discount the congregation as a whole. You find them to be vitally important to the health and spiritual sustainability of the church. But how many people on at Calvary Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, <laughs> I mean, and if I'm being honest on a podcast with you guys, we'll lay out matters of business and we'll say, we're going to meet this night and we're going to discuss it. And we'll have maybe five extra people show up than the normal 20 people that show up on a Sunday evening to discuss business for the whole church. What that as a staff, when we sit back, what that communicates to us is the church trusts us to do what, what is right, that we're not going to do what is wrong or we're not going to try to cheat or, or do things that, that the church would not be okay with. Like we're going to be sensitive to what the congregation wants and, it's just interesting to me, and I know we're really focusing on the church, but that's what our our job is. I say our job. Our role here is this. Like eschatology is our role, like to help guide the church. And uh, sorry, ecclesiology is our. <laughs> I haven't gotten, sorry, haven't gotten, we haven't gotten to that one yet. I was reading my notes. Um, ecclesiology, it's our, it's our role. It's what we've been trained to do is to help take churches from point A to point B and then from point B to point C and from point C to point D and not just in growth, but in spiritual formation. And, and so some of that, it, it looks different. Governance is important, especially in not just from a biblical standpoint, but even a cultural standpoint. I mean, the IRS, if they ever want to audit us, they're going to want to know who's this, who's this, who's this. Um, when it comes to Robert's rules of order, you know, when it comes to, uh, bylaws and policies and things that have to be on file with the state of Texas so that we stay protected as an organization. There are certain aspects of that that are super important. So it's not just, I wish that it was as simple as people make it where, Oh, show up on a Sunday morning and we just do worship and we preach. It's not, that. I mean, that's what 99% of people think. Yeah. But there is both like you were saying, sort of the legal and the financial and all of those ramifications of it. Yeah. But then there's also just the, okay, we all agree that the Bible, I say we all, Protestants, yeah. generally conservative Protestants, believe that the Bible is true and without error. Yeah. But then we can still disagree on how to interpret these passages about yeah. who's in charge and who leads yeah. what and what is this role exactly. And, and know from our perspective too, like we want the church to succeed. Like our desire is if if we are leading the church and it fails – we lose friendships. We lose people that we love and that we have deep relationships with. I mean, if we start, if we start trying to go out and do wonky stuff, there's a lot of ramifications for us, not just on a, on a church level, but also just on a personal level. I think that, I mean, 
I know Melina and I, we've built so many great friendships here. To even think about losing that would be devastating to me. Um, and so I think that, you know, when people think, oh, you, you pastors, y'all just want to come in here and make a few dollars and you just leave to go to the next church. Not always. No. Not necessarily. There may be guys out there like that. Sure. For me, there's a deep-rooted love and affection for my church. Like, I'm I'm connected into every artery here uh, in some form or fashion. And I, it to be ripped from this place would be, golly, just detrimental. So all that to say, when we talk about these things, you may hear our ideas, you may hear our thoughts. Not like we're going to do anything wonky. <laughs> we just... <laughs> These are just things that God lays on our heart on a regular basis as we begin to explore what the future has for our church, but also what the future has just for us, excuse me, personally. So, Well, there's a bunch more on ecclesiology we could say. We didn't like, even touch on the ordinances like a of whole nother different, baptism like, and the Lord's Supper and all of those things. Podcast but, series. Um, the final section in this book is eschatology or the last times end times that we all are concerned about that when am i going home so <laughs> i don't even know if we want to talk on this one i i think it's important and, and the reason is one of the things i've always learned about is hope hope is one of those things that we talk about in series faith hope love these three but the greatest of these is is love hope I know there's a day where all of the junk that I have to deal with on a regular basis in my life all the suffering that we see in the world all the pain that we see around us all the guilt that we personally feel that's going to go away to me I love the last things because it paints a it, it paints a beautiful picture of hope we hope for these things. Like I'm, I'm longing for the day when I get to be with my Savior. Um, and I know that me and uh, one of the ladies here at church, Nancy Smith, who we're hoping, actually, we've talked with Michael and Nancy about coming on a podcast soon and doing kind of a, a church member interview. So if y'all see them before we do the interview, please tell them to come on the podcast. Come on the podcast and remind Nathan too. He's still got to finish his series on worship. But, um, <laughs> but anyways. One of the things that Nancy and I, we, we would joke about sometimes, uh, we talk about people would say, well, you know, it's not that bad a day. Consider the alternative. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the alternative is so <laughs> great. You know, it's, I mean, it's not like I'm morbid or anything, but man, the alternative to this life is living in, in that glorification, that, that idea of being in the glory and in the presence of the Lord and we sing a song Sunday night. You were with me. Uh, we were in the sound booth singing a song Sunday night. And it's just, a, it's a neat old hymn. Uh, and it kind of paints this beautiful picture of this hope and this idea, this resurrection of body and life that we're going to have. And, but it's that I've got a mansion. And in my heart, I don't care anything about the mansion. I don't care if it's made of wood. I don't care if it's made of gold. I don't care if it's like an air fort. So there's like a fan sitting there and it blows air in and that's where I have to live. The mansion doesn't concern me. You know, it's like, how close can I get to the throne? That's like, what's going to concern me. You know, I want to, I, I, okay. I was not going to go into this. Yeah. I, I intentionally skipped over it earlier. <laughs> 
There is no mansion. Oh, no. How much time do we have? Oh, man. I don't know. I, I think we're getting kind of close. I mean, we're... At, so let me give the, the five-minute yeah, version of this. Give, give us give us the three-minute, Travis. Thoughts with Travis on this episode's podcast. Okay. So that whole concept, I'm going to talk to Nathan about not singing that song anymore. <laughs> it's not biblical. <laughs> Words are important in how we sing. Well, but... Um, Here's here's my yeah. argument. Let me okay. argument, and then I'll get my rebuttal. Okay, so the whole idea of us getting a mansion comes from one verse in John fourteen six, and, uh-huh. and this is where I skipped it in the King James conversation. So the only translation that talks about us getting a mansion is in the King James, and it's because of how they translated the particular Latin word that in any other translation, especially those that are coming from the Greek, which was the actual language that Holy Spirit inspired the Bible to be written in. Yeah. So, see, Holy Spirit. Not Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. You did um, it. Good job. So, You're charismatic now. <laughs> so, the passage that this verse is actually talking about, he says, Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14, and he says uh, that he's going to prepare a place for us. But specifically, he says, I'm going to prepare a room. Yeah. King James says mansion. Yeah. Every other translation that's actually going from the Greek says room. And the reason this is important is this whole passage is wedding language. So he's he's telling his disciples that he's about to leave. He's uh-huh. he's foreshadowing the crucifixion, but right. he's telling them he's going to come back. Right. And so, you know, there's argument about if he's talking about the resurrection or if he's talking about the second coming, but that put aside for a second. The language that he's talking about is this whole analogy or like image of a wedding. So in the Jewish uh, culture of that time, what would happen when a man proposed is he would take his bride-to-be some sort of gift. And uh-huh. I was telling the youth, like, if they were, like, a shepherd, it might be, like, a hundred goats or sheep. Or, you know, like, yeah. it's, they didn't do engagement rings like we do. Yeah. So they'd bring some sort of gift that was huge financially for the family. Yeah. And it was his way of saying, like, this is my gift to you, my pledge to be married. It was their version of engagement. Yeah. And then what would happen is if the other family agreed to it, not just the bride to be, but the family agreed to it. Right. That young man would go back to his father's house, which in context of the John 14, he's saying, I'm going to be with my father. Uh And so he says, I'm going to prepare a room for you. Yeah. So what this young man would do, who just basically proposed is he would go back to his father's house and he would add on a room to his father's house and that room would be like the extension where he and his bride would live. Now, when he was finished constructing this new part of the home is when he would go get her to marry her and then they would start their life together. But it would it would be this construction of the room attached to the father's house mm-hmm. that would be what was necessary for them to be married. So what you're saying is, ladies, make sure he always has a place for you to live first. Well, that's true too, but that's not the point. <laughs> So that, so the idea is like there there's no hint in the original John 14 passage that has anything to do with building a mansion. So That's what, not how real estate worked in first century Judaism. So what you just did in relating systematic theology is you did a process of biblical theology and a process of historical theology contextualizing that giving you not just a you're not just reading over John 14, 6 and going, oh, I'm going to go prepare, prepare a room for you. Oh, neat. Cool. Like it's an apartment building in heaven yeah. and it's going to be great. Um, it's not like you get the spare bedroom. That's not you, the whole point is this picture of marriage. Like this is why we talk about the church being the bride of Christ. 
Yeah. Like it, it is a much bigger picture. Yeah. It of, all relates into that one context. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like there's multiple deviations away from the one narrative. And yeah. that's that narrative theology or that kind of that idea of th- there's this continual story. And it's funny, the more and more we dive deeper and deeper and the more that, m- that, that men and women dive deeper and deeper into this understanding and they say, wait a second, wait a second. What we're doing is a lot of times we are correcting what we've known to be and aligning it with what is. And we spend, we will spend years and centuries doing that, correcting what we thought to be true and aligning with what is. And we can't beat ourselves up for not knowing. Think about the disciples. They're with Jesus. They, they didn't know. They had no clue. Jesus foreshadows three times of his death, burial, and resurrection. And they're like, and then they're all shocked when that happens. <laughs> Neat, man. Okay, cool. What are you talking about? Let's just, I gotta, I'm hungry. Let's get some bread and fish and let's go to work. And then we're like, wait, he's dead. What? Wait, he showed up. Wait, you know, so it's like, it's so funny. So we can't beat ourselves up. No. And I'm not saying we should. Yeah. It's just a pet peeve of mine. Cause that's something that yeah. a lot of churches are like <laughs> singing about and like, I'm going to get a mansion. And I just want to say like, yeah. Okay. In God's sovereignty and providence and goodness, maybe he does give every one of us a mansion. It's not in the Bible though. Well, it, to me, that's hard because it plays a lot into that prosperity aspect of faith where, um, when we talk about that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, like I I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. It doesn't. It, when you read the whole context of that passage, that's he said not, that while they're in exile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they weren't so, prospering very much. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much saying, I I know what I'm doing, I know the plans I have, and he's not saying I'm going to give you a thousand goats, you know, and you're going to be the wealthiest people in the world. He's just saying. I'm, he's kind of assuring them, I'm not leaving you. You are in exile. I am not abandoning you and I am not leaving you. And so I think that that aspect is, is better for us to understand. Yeah. I think, so even the idea of like, well, you, like said, you were the, saying, you, you were more concerned about how close can you be to Jesus or like, yeah. can you sit at his throne and just be with him? Yeah. Why do I care about where I'm going to be staying? Yeah. I mean, like, I'll just camp out there at the does throne. My, does my mansion have marble floors? Like, I mean, like, it seems yeah. petty to, I mean, let me see. Sorry let me if I'm stepping on if toes. I can't, if I can't afford it on, on earth, <laughs> I probably can't afford it in heaven. All right. <laughs> I mean, if I, I can't afford granite countertop, I can barely afford epoxy paint to cover my laminate countertops, much less, you know, so I think it's, but it's, again, it goes, it plays into this idea. We want a better life than what we have right now. Sure. And I have no and, doubt that it'll be better. Yeah. But I think the way that we in American culture, especially, the way that we measure better life is material and it's not. And, and I have to remind myself of that. Even Charles has to remind himself that, okay, material things, this is not going to sustain my life any further. It's the spiritual things. It's my family. It's my, my relationship with God. It's my relationship with my spouse. Those are the things that I need to be focusing on. Um, even the church as an organization. I can't ask the church as an organization to be my sustainability because that's too much pressure on them. And uh, so I think that it's all putting, putting things in a worldview and perspective. And that may be, you know, maybe our, one of our another conversations needs to be talking about developing a gospel centered, Christ centered 
worldview and perspective, I think that that's a big, broad topic too. Uh, and we can get a lot into Francis Schaefer with that. We can get a lot into uh, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy and uh, really understanding that concept and idea. Um, so I don't know. So we skipping over the millennium and rapture and all of that part of eschatology? Golly, there's so many different points, and we were so far at this point. The The interesting thing is a lot of our people right now are going through Revelation to some extent, and so they're really interested in these things. And like, oh, man, when you read it, you're like, how in the world? Like this idea of this beast, and there's this winged animal, and then there's this. Um, when we look at the idea of rapture and tribulation, and when we look at these things, please understand I find that there is value in getting an understanding and a deep, not not say deep knowledge, but a knowledge of what those things mean. But I don't think those are things that us as believers that we need to be harping on and that we need to be splitting ourselves over. I think that, I think that when it comes to the last things, we need to be about saying, okay, Jesus is coming. Premillennial. Um, <laughs> Uh, which I, I probably hold a little bit more to. Um, but either way, there's going to come a time where when I escape this life, this life no longer has merit. You know, my physical body on earth no longer has merit or value. And I will be released into glory with Jesus. Because if we get too deep into it, we could say, well, are you sleep state or not? <laughs> are you this or not? Do you believe that you're just yeah. going to be asleep for 200 years and everybody's raptured at the same time? Do you well, believe that? Well, that's why I thought it was good that you started with like, this ends in hope. It ends in hope. This a whole picture. There's understanding, but it ends in hope. Yeah. I mean, I asked, uh, again, talking about the Smiths, I asked Nancy whenever I heard Michael was going to teach his class on Revelation. I was like, is he pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill? And she goes, I don't know, but I'm pan. I was like, Pan? Did I forget one of the ones in seminary? Like, I have no idea what that view is. And she's like, it's going to pan out in the end. I'm like, ah, I like that. I like that a lot. Because, yeah, we can, we can get in the weeds. And uh, maybe we can someday. Yeah, maybe one of these days. Just, just to spark some conversation, like, I'm actually all mill. Yeah. And, and I'm that, the only one on the staff that's all mill. Paul didn't realize that until he was working on his sermon about the rapture. <laughs> and he came and asked me a question. And I was like, actually, I'm all mill. And granted, Paul did tell him, now that won't get you fired. Yeah. Um, so, And really, when you look at it, I think people look at all mill from one perspective that they've been taught. I don't think they'd look at it from the broader perspective of what it is. Well, I think most people, especially in the pre-mill camp, yeah. have no idea what all mill is. Yeah, because all didn't. we're really concerned is with post-mill. Like you can't be post. Like that's weird. Except so. for Jonathan Edwards was post, and he was probably the smartest American to ever live. So, <laughs> and he's dead. Still the smartest American to ever live. <laughs> Pretty high bar. So he's either, he's with Jesus. It all pans out in the end. It all pans out in the end. And then you get the whole idea of like soul and body and how those things meet. So it's is your soul different than your spirit? Right. And then how do <laughs> I mean, we can get real deep into it. Here's the way I'm going to interpret this. All right. Here's and the last things, and then we'll kind of start closing out. You're going to die one day. <laughs> all, all of us, if you're listening, you're going to die. You cannot sustain your life in for eternity on this earth. There's going to be a moment where you pass. So you have to ask that question of, 
Where am I at in my relationship with God? Am, do I have a relationship with God through Jesus or do I have a relationship with God through church? You need to have a relationship with God through Jesus. You then need to have a relationship with church through your relationship with Jesus. And then you operate every single day as if it's your last to be on this earth. And you work diligently to make sure that you are growing spiritually, that you are sharing that spiritual wealth of knowledge with those around you, and that you are hoping and anticipating for the time when Jesus comes back and when Jesus restores you. That's what we need to be about. And that's what we need to be doing. So systematic theology is great because it points us all in that direction at the end. I mean, we're learning from God at the attributes at the beginning to kind of that narrative story like we talk about from Genesis to Revelation of how God begins to work history uh, out. And even we've got a guys group right now where we're trying to, it's called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, it's that salvation history that we're looking at. Like, where do we find the evidence of Christ's the workings of God, the, uh, you know, even the metaphors um, of Christ through the narrative stories in the Old Testament and how other things have, have worked in the New Testament. So I think that there's this beautiful picture that if we get too bent out of shape on, we're going to miss. We have to be sensitive. We have to care. Um, and we just have to remember that at the end of the day, per the words of Nancy Smith, it's all going to pan out. All right. So, so let us know your thoughts. I'm sure you're going to have a lot, uh, especially if you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, you're probably gonna be like, Whoa. Um, but please let us know your thoughts on this. And again, we are not going to sit back and say that this is an exhaustive overview. Uh, but we do want you to understand that our desire is to help you grow in relationship with the Lord, uh, and also help you understand us a little bit more personally. We don't want you, we don't want to be so distant from you that you feel like you don't know us. And so uh, let us know your thoughts, comments, questions. You can email us. You can uh, call us at the church. You can find us on a Sunday. You can text us, whatever it looks like. But we definitely need your input so that we have content to talk about. If you don't give us input, we're going to talk about whatever we want to. We're going to do a whole other episode on coffee. Oh, we could do it too. Oh, easy easy. We could talk about different brewing methods, uh, which <laughs> by the way, today is brought to you by a Guatemalan washed process brewed in a Chemex and, uh, very good. I think it had a very good note. It, it, it got a little more bitter as it cooled, but, uh, when it was warm, it was a very smooth. Yeah. I think that was one of my favorites that you've done. Enjoyable cup. Yeah. The Guatemalan is great. They don't really like it on Sunday morning. They like the Ethiopian more. I think it's because of our grinder though. I think so. I'm not saying church needs to go buy an expensive grinder, but yeah. it would make the coffee better. Yeah. We're not getting a thousand dollar grinder anytime soon. Just FYI. That's not good stewardship. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyways, so let us know your thoughts and comments and we hope that you have a blessed week.